coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. We go to air just as a massive cyber attack is striking Europe. And Google's just let us know they're no longer reading our email. Say what? Really? Mm, kinda. Plus, Dan and I get into the details about U.S. government access to overseas data and the ongoing Supreme Court case that will decide the future of our privacy. Plus, we've got your feedback, a giant jam-packed hard-hitting roundup, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This episode was streamed live on June 27, 2017, and is brought to you by our three sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. My name is Wes, and joining me this week, yes, that's right, it's the one, the only, the BSD master, the backup monster, it's Dan. Welcome to the show, Dan. Hello, everybody. I'm here. Uh, it's wonderful to see you. How are you today? I'm good. Excellent. Well, we've now, got some, like, uh, we've got a, there's a lot going on in this show. Breaking news right at the start. And you've got is. something new for us right there. The, the, it's not so much new as um, someone asked in the TechSnap Reddit which book it was. Mm. I said that I didn't have it. And what I meant by didn't have it, I meant I didn't have it right here. It was <laughs> out in the living room. This is DNS and Bind by Abbott's and Leo. Lee, Lee, Anyway, you'll find it online. Um, this particular edition is from, I believe, 1998. And that sort of times in with about the time. I believe that I got ordered this off Amazon when I was living in New Zealand at the time. And that's basically why I got an Amazon account was to get books oh, nice. like this. Totally. So there's a newer edition than this. I believe this is the third edition. So if you're looking to learn more about uh, DNS in general and bind in particular. This is what you want to read. Um, it's what I used. I don't reference and I don't reference it much anymore. I'm usually consulting online docs. Oh yeah, okay. but it, it's good to read to get an initial appreciation for what you're getting into. Yeah, you know, sometimes you really need that where you can get something that has, um, you know, full breadth of something. You're not just picking up tutorials here and there. You have something that really yes. has the full scope so you can get the primitive ideas and then you can, you know, build on. It's like riding a bike. Now you know DNS. It certainly helps. Yeah. Yes. All right. What were you going to say? Oh, no, I think that's it. Um, okay. Anything else for the dear audience before we jump in? No, we can get into a, a photograph I took of my Let's Encrypt diagram later. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm interested. That sounds fun. It might be. It might be. All right. Well, okay. first, before we get there, I know everyone will be waiting with bated breath until that point, but there's actually like breaking news right now. Massive cyber attack hits Europe with widespread ransom demands. Yeah. And this is news, but it's also happening right now. And people are working to circumvent it well circumvent it nullify it they're trying to deal with it um basically a new the report i have is from the washington post but a new wave of powerful 
cyber attacks hit Europe on Tuesday, which is today. So they're pretty much done their business day as we record this. But um, th th this is a big deal because it's a it's a it's widespread. Um, sorry, no. It's a possible reprise of the widespread ransomware that occurred in May that affected 150 countries. Basically, a what's happening this time is they have a yeah. What they're talking about in this post, which came in, which was done at 1:30, so about two hours ago. What they're talking about here is not as detailed as what I found in other posts, but basically. The first report that came through was from Merck, which is a giant pharmaceutical company. And that's going to cause all kinds of trouble if it gets into the wrong places there. Um, if you can show the ISC link, I think that's the third one. Third one? Did I post that in the notes? Yeah. Notes at the SANS ISC. Basically, it starts off that a reader told them earlier today they heard some rumors that the company Merck is having a major virus outbreak with something new in their Euro Europe offices affected more than their Euro US offices. So they did a quick check and they found something on Forbes. They found something in the International Business Times and something in The Verge. And so their, their summary was that the initial reports indicate this is much like last month's WannaCry attack, but later on, we'll see that it's very different from WannaCry. According to The Verge, today's ransomware appears to be a new Petya variant called Petya Rap. Petya Rap. Uh, That's fun to say. Pet, petty? Pet, pet, something Petia like that. Petya Rap? Petia? I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Sorry. At, that, this, at this point, we see plenty... This is quoting again. At this point, we see plenty of speculation on how the ransomware is spreading. Everything from email to an Eternal Blue-style SMB attack, but nothing has been confirmed yet for the initial vector. Then they have some uh, SHA hashes and some more information, blah, 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 blah. But if we go to uh, a blog post on the Talos website, that is the second link. Got it. Uh, full disclosure, I work for these folks. Um, so basically, their research leads them to believe that the sample leverages Eternal Blue and WMI for lateral movement inside an effective network. So that's how it, how it's spreading within the network. That's not how it gets into the network. Uh, but lever Eternal Blue may be how they get in. I have to read up more on Eternal Blue. So this behavior is unlike WannaCry. So it's different from WannaCry, they're saying, as there does not appear to be an external scanning component. Additionally, there may be also a PS exec vector that is also used to spread in, in, internally. So the identification of the initial vector is proven more challenging. That That is, they don't know how it first gets started. So early reports of an email vector cannot be confirmed. Based on observed in the wild behaviors, the lack of a known viable external spreading mechanism, and other research, we believe that it is possible some affections, uh, infections may be associated with software update, update systems for a Ukrainian tax accounting package called MEDOC. Huh. This appears to be... Of, be this appears to have been confirmed by MEDOC. So they're going to keep looking at it. So then I went to the link they provide, 
provided. And that link, which is in Russian, uh, and I'll update this in the show notes. I don't think you ha have it. Um, let me see here. Oh, here we go. I just clicked on the link in the article. Yeah, that, that's a simple one. And if you click in there and translate it, it just basically says, hey, listen, there's a virus. Be careful. Let's now, do it live. Our server made a virus attack. We yep. apologize for the inconvenience. That's fun. So, so now go to the homepage. Just strip off the end of the URL. Go to the homepage. And then in the top right corner, you'll see something uh, important. Attention users, a virus attack in the corporate sector. You click on, uh, scroll down. It'll be in the right. Uh, oh, attention users. Yeah, yeah. Right, right there. If you click on that one, then it has more information about the virus. And it appears to have started on the 18th, which is six days ago. Six days ago? Uh, yes, nine days ago. Oh, but no, it looks like it was maybe in uh, May. May 18th? Is that right? Yes. Yes, May 18th. Oh, wow, that's um, more than a month ago. Hmm. Interesting. So, not really sure. So, they're they're calling it a next data virus and, they're, and acts according to the WannaCry cry scheme now this came out on may 22nd the, the this post dates from may 22nd not today so but this attention users post came out today so the these two important news notices are from different months oh that's interesting okay so back there they said an, a, a virus attack on the corporate sector so it's not sure it came through there or maybe maybe it's being distributed accidentally unintentionally through their update because if you go back to the talus blog post it says this um may be associated with software update systems for ukrainian tax accounting package okay huh. so it's somehow maybe going through their update system <coughs> pardon so Anyone in Europe, if you're having this trouble now, I'm very sorry. This is, ah, there are better things to deal with than this crap. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, and like you were, you know, like you're saying, it really can have some terrible consequences when you're, when you're infecting places like Merck, where there's a lot of pharmaceutical things, which could obviously mm -hmm. have health implications. Uh, or the, yep. the article mentions that uh, the virus even hit systems monitoring radiation at the site of the former Chernobyl nuclear power plant. That can't be good either. You know, we have these very important civilian infrastructure type um, or, or private um, that really, uh, there's a lot, you know, you, once you start spreading these things, there's, you know, you're not controlling that. I who, mm -hmm. No virus authors writing in these safeguards. Well, mm, yeah, but if this looks like it's the power grid, then leave it alone because I want my computer to keep running. That would be nice, but I don't, I don't see it. <sighs> so th this particular ransomware, the Petya ransomware. Has, was identified in 2016, mm. and it differs from other ransomware because it overwrites the, the master boot, boot record and encrypts the master file table. It doesn't encrypt all your files. It just encrypts everything. You can't get that, to your files. That you, you can't get to your files. That's really annoying. So the American Gas Association said the ransomware struck Europe at about 9 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time on Tuesday. Okay. 9 a.m. Our, our time is about 1 p.m. their time, is not From critical infrastructure sectors, including banking, electric, and aviation in Ukraine, 
to other countries including Britain, Russia, Denmark, and Spain. The association added natural gas and electric sectors in the U.S. were alerted within minutes of the European report and are reviewing indicators to monitor and defend against infection. Ah, basically, (laughs) the Ukrainian deputy prime minister tweeted a series of computer pictures in English saying, one of your discs contains errors, blah, blah, blah. Do not turn off your PC. If you abort this process, you could destroy all your data, which mean, probably means it's encrypting them all. Don't, don't turn it off. Otherwise, you'll interrupt us. Yeah, exactly. And then it'll be, uh, you know, half encrypted. That's what you want. It'll be kind of late. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Now, suspicion, yeah. suspicions among Ukrainian officials quickly fell upon Russia, which annexed the Crimean... Right. in 2014, but so far there's no proof of Russian involvement, um, but it's still early days. Right, yet. I assume and we'll have to wait it, a while to get those kind it, of details it's locked not down. Just, it's not just Ukraine affected by this, from what we can tell. Mm-hmm. And where was that? Yeah. No, I'm I hope I never have to deal with this. I hope nobody I know ever has to deal with this. Mm-hmm. Oh. I guess we wish no one ever had to deal with it. Oh, gosh, I know, right? Uh, and then so many people end up paying them and maybe getting their data back. <sighs> and the paying is what feeds it. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, it, it's just going to keep coming and coming and people yeah, are keep going to kind of make profit. This isn't just annoying as criminal. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, some people don't pay or they lose files or, you know, it never gets unencrypted. And then there's also, you know... There, there goes your photos. Whoops. Hope you uh, made backups. <sighs> uh, we, um, do we have anything more in here? Um, no. I think that's about it. I'm going to see if there's a newer blog post there. Twenty-seven. Hold on. Well, it'll be interesting to see how this. Um, Involves. The damage was worst in Ukraine, huh? Well, that's no good. I know, it's the same post. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. I thought I had new blog posts, but it's the same one as before. All right. Well, then, yeah. let's move it, on. If anyone is dealing with this, write in, tell us what happened. It mm-hmm. would be interesting to know what you had to do and the first, first-hand accounts from the field. Through. Yes. Yeah, That exactly. would be lovely. Uh, all right. Well, uh, if you're concerned about this and you want to keep your servers far away from Ukraine... Head on over to our next sponsor today. That's our friends over at DigitalOcean.com. There, you can use our promo code, SnapOcean. Just one word, SnapOcean. Easy, fun to say. Say it like three times, SnapOcean, SnapOcean, SnapOcean. Just keep saying it, it's fine. And go sign up at DigitalOcean.com. They've just introduced object storage. Yeah, that's right. Object storage, just like all the other clouds, DigitalOcean's got it. And they've been doing an incredible job of regularly rolling out new features that are really becoming, you know, the things you started to expect from a cloud provider. So if you're using something else, something that maybe competes with DigitalOcean, you should really, one of the things about DigitalOcean is they don't just do, you know, sure, you can spin up a VPS in under 55 seconds with a ton of great choices of operating systems from Container OS or uh, FreeBSD or CentOS or Fedora or Ubuntu or Debian. I mean, they've got all the favorites, of course. But you've got things like load balancing and monitoring You've got attachable block storage. You've got new object storage, which is you know makes it very easy for a ton of apps. If you really just need to, hey, stick this object, put it in the cloud. I can retrieve it later. 
super easy to do. Host a package repo with things like that. Host a blog. A ton of great options now open to you DigitalOcean and all of it comes with DigitalOcean's amazing API. They really dogfood that API. They use it to build their apps. All the community uses it to build the awesome apps. We use it here to help run our, our streaming. It's super simple, super powerful, and it doesn't make you hate yourself. That's the thing. You know, some, some of their competitors, you have to learn a lot. There's tons of different problems with access and credentials and control and giant horrible blobs of JSON that have way too many fields or don't have the fields that you need. Now, DigitalOcean, they've spent a long time working on this. They've got a really core integrated product set that all works really well together while being very flexible. So it's just, it's just super easy. And go check out their prices. They're just ridiculous. It starts so low. It's $5 a month. And when you use SnapOcean, you'll get a $10 credit. Yeah, that's right. That's two months of that $5 droplet. Or if you're working on a project, you don't really need... You know, you don't really, you don't need bargain basement. I say just jump on up to that ten dollar month. You'll get a free month that way. You get a whole gig of memory, one core processor, thirty gigs of all SSD disk, and a whopping two terabytes of transfer. That's a great way to start out. Whether you're working on a new project, you just want to host your own blog, you're you're uh, hosting maybe an accounting system, not one run by viruses, of course. You know, for for your family members or for a friend, or you just need a just need a place to host files. It's all super easy at DigitalOcean.com with our promo code SnapOcean. So thank you very much, DigitalOcean, for sponsoring the TechSnap program. All right, Mr. Dan, what do you have for us uh, next up in the queue? Google. Oh, Google. Hmm. Uh. Go- um, we've we've talked before about email privacy and we've talked before about free services Mm -hmm. and we've talked about how if you don't want Google to read your email um, by a paid service (laughs) yeah right and 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 to be realistic all email gets read as it gets sent what people were worried about is that Google would use the contents of your email to use that information to target ads at you. Right. And when I say read, I mean, there's a machine somewhere that reads the bytes in your email. It may not be doing any comprehension about it, but it gets transmitted from A to B. And for that purpose, it has to be read. Yes. And then they're actively trying to, you know, pick out keywords or intent or phrases to, to figure out, hey, how do we, how do we better target yeah. this person? What demographic are they? Um, do you know the type of blog uh, that makes the most money? No, I do not, but I'm, I'm interested. I believe it's digital cameras. Oh, digital Because cameras. people will pay a lot to have ads on uh, blog sites that will review digital cameras, because what do you do if you're going to buy one? You want to go and review it. And mm-hmm. while you're there, people want to have the ads on there because that's where you're going to sell them. And apparently those are very lucrative, or they were when I first heard this information, which was notably a few years ago. But interesting, wouldn't be surprised if it's still almost A lot of people make money off of just uh, uh, YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. And again, that's ad revenue. But the ads that you see on YouTube are not based on your email content. The ad you see when you're running the free version of Gmail Maybe. But anyway, to the post. Um, There are several posts on this, but the one that I thought uh, was the nicest one was the one from NPR. One of my favorite radio stations, right behind Radio New Zealand and CBC. Nice. And and BBC as well. Mm -hmm. They're all 
Oh, pretty good. So anyway, Google will no longer scan emails in Gmail accounts in order to sell targeted advertising, the company said Friday. Now, keep this in mind. Always be careful about how somebody words a statement. Because if they, they, that sentence could have been ended earlier. You could have said Google will no longer scan emails in Gmail accounts. Yeah, but that's, they haven't. That's they a said pretty in big order difference. to sell targeted advertising. Okay. All we, one of the best things about, one of the good things to do when you're writing something is to be as short and as concise as you can. And if you can make the sentence shorter, make it shorter. And they could have by removing that phrase, but they can't because it, it would be false. So they are going to continue to scan emails, just not to sell targeted advertising. Okay. So it goes into some of the things later on about why they will still be scanning the email. So the company will make this change later this week, bringing Gmail in line with, with its G Suite products for business use. Now, if you're not familiar with what G Suite is, um, there used to be a product called Postini, which I think used to refer to... Um, Oh, it, it, was, it was a way that you could just have your email go through Google and then get passed on. So you could get all your mail virus scanned by Google and then forwarded on to your own service. And that's what I, I use that service. Postini has now been discontinued and everyone's been migrated over to Google Apps, which is now known as G Suite. And it's very cheap. It's a dollar a month for, for one user. And that's all it cost me to have Google act as my MX for a whole lot of domains because it's only one user. It's only me. Um, I like it because I don't have to maintain any more virus scanners and stuff mm -hmm, like that. Mm -hmm. And I can all go to one spot. So my email, because I'm using G Suite, was not scanned for target of advertising. I'm sure it was scanned for other reasons, but that, that's a separate point. So back to the post. Ads shown are based on users' settings. Users can change these settings at any time, including disabling ads personalization. I guess that if you disable the personalization, you're just going to get generic ads, mm -hmm. nothing personal towards you. And personally, I would prefer targeted ads because it may be more interesting to me than non-targeted ads. You might actually want something that they're advertising to you. How handy would that be? Yep. And, and people time and time again say, hey, listen, I was looking at something on eBay or I was looking at something in Google and now my Facebook ad, Facebook pages mm. are filled up with ads for that product. Yep. Well, that's because you... Yeah, they know. The system knows. They want you to buy it because you want to buy it. Mm -hmm. And people get a bit upset about that. They say, how does Google know that I'm this person on, on Facebook? Well, they don't. They do it through tokens and basically... There's a token in your browser that when you go to search stuff for Google and you go to a website, it states, well, this person has to be, happens to be interested in this particular stuff. And so when someone buys Google ads from Google, they say, I want to show these ads to people that are interested in this particular stuff. So Ooh. it's not Facebook knowing or it's not that website knowing. It's Google ads knowing. And that's not as creepy as it sounds. 
Right. And I mean, really, yeah, there are, I mean, there are certainly creepy aspects. There are certainly ways that people abuse those things or try to use too much personal information. But mm-hmm. by and large, yeah, I mean, like the design of the system is really just to be, hey, there's people are spending money on ads. They want them to be as effective as possible. One way to do that is try to make them match what the person might actually be buying already. Mm-hmm. Yep. The blog post states that consumer Gmail content will not be used or scanned for any ads personalization after this change. And then the comment by NPR is that leaves the door open for the company to continue to scan emails for other purposes. And these are legitimate, in my opinion, like sorting them by priority or suggesting replies you might send. Now, basically, some... You know, in Gmail, you can go in, you can star a message saying, this is important to me. Mm-hmm. Gmail uses that starring to to predict future emails that may be important to you. And that's what the priority is all about. So to me, that is benign. That is providing you with a service based on what's in your email. So now... A little aside here. And Google will continue to display ads in Gmail based on what it knows about user, which we know is a whole lot. And there's a link there you can follow to find out more. So now this is where it gets confusing here because there is a date mentioned here and a date mentioned below. And I think they're trying to link them together, but I'm not sure. Um, They say that in 2014, Gmail updated its terms of service to inform users that their emails were analyzed by software in order to target ads. Now, I'm not really sure why that's news because that's been known a lot longer than before 2014. Maybe they were just trying to be upfront about it. But anyway, I'll add that link into the show notes later so people can go in and read it. But back to this. The fact that Google was scanning users' email has long troubled privacy advocates. It appears that perhaps one of the concerns of business users that finally made Google end the practice. And they've got 3 million companies using Google Suites, and they want to get more. And one of the concerns that the companies had is, well, you're you're scanning our emails for this. Mm-hmm. That email's still going to be scanned. Yeah. All you're worried about, all, the only valid concern is, I don't want to see ads based on what was in there. Yeah, but I can to certainly me, I see, see the difference. I don't see the difference either, but I can definitely see other pe- in some people's minds a, a difference, or just in you know, in the many enterprise checkboxes for security or information disclosure or whatever in one of those lines, something that makes this a little bit easier or the interpretation, mm-hmm. you know, instead of being like, well, no, we know that they do that. Oh, they say they don't. And, uh, you know, th- this form doesn't care about the spam blocking or other normal everyday filtering or whatever. But yeah, I don't, I, it seems like people are going to use it anyway. There's a sentence here. What technologies call personalization is what some people call creepy. Now, personally, I don't have a trouble. I don't have trouble with personalized ads or targeted ads. I would prefer it over generic ads because none of that information is being given away, as far as I'm concerned. It's it's being used to identify the types of ads, mm-hmm. and perhaps. 
people are concerned that, well, if it's known that I like product X and product X is rather embarrassing. They've got your number on those figs, man. I'm telling you. Yeah. They do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I also think it serves purposes to try to, you know, as always, you have to pick your battles. So if, yeah, as long as, as long as the, the techniques, I think what people also have in, um, problems with is they don't always feel that they understand or are aware of everything that's going on so while while the actual you know mm-hmm. things being done may not act, you know if you knew about it you, you wouldn't have a problem with it but just the idea that this is happening in the background out there assembling this data store about you which i mean is happening anyway for all things all the time but i can see how it, you know it, it rubs people the wrong way even if they don't actually understand the problem or haven't looked into it have you heard reports of People just leaving their phones sitting there while it's listening to a Spanish radio show or something like that. And then sometime within the next few days, ads start appearing to them in Spanish. Oh, interesting. I I have no, I've, I've only seen Twitter posts about mm-hmm. it. I've not seen any confirmation or stuff like right. that. Right, we need some more analysis or um, something. But And I don't want to say the product or anything like that, but that's just, anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So if we can focus, you know, if we can focus on on problems where, we, where where things that are acceptable, we can be like, okay, that's fine, and you know, you can do it. We can use our services still, but then we can have more energy there to to fight when people do push things too far, or are you know recording you without your permission, or any of these things that um, were maybe going on. Ads are important to Google. Yeah. Very important, and I'll finish up with this last paragraph in NPR. Well, hold on. Well, we, we got a couple of other things to go before I get there. So there, there were two more links in the show notes. One was the uh, Bloomberg technology post, which doesn't really cover much more than what uh, NPR did, except to say that Google doesn't share its cloud division sales, but other revenues, which includes those numbers, grew 49% to $3 billion in the first quarter of this year. So that's four bi- three times four, twelve billion dollars a year just for um, uh, cloud computing, which includes G Suite. Now, over to the Google glo- Google blog post. As G Suite gains traction in the enterprise, G Suite's Gmail and consumer Gmail to more closely align. And there's not much said in here except there's more than three million paying companies that use G Suite. And G Suite is already not used as input for ads personalization. And Google has decided to follow suit later this year in our free consumer Gmail service. I imagine they're at the point now where they don't need to customize the ads that much. They already, they're feeling pretty confident in their stuff that they don't need to do this anymore. And so they might as well turn it off. And that will appeal to to more people, which will get more people using it, which will mean more ads. So, yeah, not ads when you're in G Suite, but ads when you're in Gmail, the free service. And they say here, Gmail is the world's preeminent mail provider with more than 1.2 billion users. Dang, wow. And it is pretty good at, at detecting spam. Yeah, I mean, that's, um, I'm, I'm using it myself for some things. No, no. One of the things that happens, and I've seen this many times, is that I will have a delivered email, but I'll also see it held for 
spam notification. Okay. So what happens is an email gets delivered to you, and then someone else marks that as spam. And then Google marks all the other emails that Uh, other people got as spam. And you go back in, and it's in your spam file, but you've already got it in your inbox. How confusing. And I go in and I unmark it as spam, and it it flows through. It doesn't flow through because it's already there, but it gets it out of that queue. Um, And I think that is because... When the email first comes out, it's not detected as spam by Google, but then a number Later. of people report it as such, and then it proactively goes back and pulls that out of inboxes. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I mean, it makes sense, and I'm sure they want that to be as good as possible, but I can imagine that would be kind of confusing until you figured out just what was happening. Yeah, and it happens a few times a week. And then you get in a and click war where you're like... Other people are marking it as spam and you're marking it as not spam. And yeah, but it, it doesn't move after you've done it. It doesn't move in your boxes after you've categorized okay, it. Okay, so it'll, you'll, your local preference yeah. will override whatever. It, what it, it's happening to mail which has not been read or delivered mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. But you're right, they do, uh, they do uh, um, a pretty good job with the spam filtering and other things and uh, yes. have proven their, like the them. use of their you know, text mining algorithms in, the, in that sense at least. But I am considering going to Fastmail. Yeah, no, I've heard only good things about Fastmail. I'm not using it myself, but uh, I know I know some people here at JB have used it over the years, and uh, some people in my life that use it. So, what what uh, what made you select them for one, and then two? What made you consider moving? Someone mentioned it to me. <laughs> Easy enough. They, they would they would be they would host my mail server as well. They would ho- they would they would be the ingress for the email and also hosts the IMAP server. Okay, yeah. So you would just go to a totally hosted Fastmail yep. solution. Mm-hmm. Although there is a there is an IMAP server which stores emails in a Postgres database. Hey, that sounds right up your alley. And I do like that, but it's more for archiving than it is for I see. email reading. Rather than actually like day-to-day use, it's just, hey, here's this. You can... Here's this historical archive that you could then do searches on or your own data mining or, or whatever you need to do. Interesting. And someone just mentioned in the channel Proton Mail. Mm, mm-hmm. Developed in 2013 at the CERN Institute. Hmm. I don't know that I've used it. So I can't comment. Looks pretty. Yeah, Let's I remember when they comments. signed up. I actually think I have an account here. I'll have to dig back more in. They were just when I was first signed up for it, they were just getting launched and I know I mean they made security a big fix, but they were still working on a lot of their like mobile app stuff and other yeah. interfaces. I think when I said it was web only maybe. I don't know. So it's definitely time and, for a and, visit. End to end encryption and stuff like that. Yeah, I do think it's web only. That 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 sort of makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Well they want to But it four. would be web only. Four euros a month here for five gigs of storage. A thousand Where messages per day. Oh, I'm just looking, looking at the prices over at protonmail.com. About. Uh, They've got a lot of doctors working there. Anyway. Off topic. Yep. All right. Uh, anything else you want to add about um, our friends over at Google and their changes? There, There is this last thing from NPR. 
Although Alphabet, Google's parent company, has expanded into businesses, including mobile phones, home assistants, and autonomous vehicles, it still made 88% of its revenue through advertising in 2016. Wow. 88% of the revenue is ads. That's a lot of money. That's a ton of money. That really does show you that they are still an advertising company, first and foremost. They are. Mm-hmm. They are. I guess like a search engine too. Sometimes I'm not. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm a, I'm a Yahoo What's, guy. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm just kidding. Duck, duck, go. Yeah, there you go. Hey, that's a good option. Uh, all right. Well then, that's interesting. I guess we'll have to see if they make any more similar changes. And I, I like. I, I think you're right that I won't. It probably won't be a big move for people. But you're probably also like it's just not worth that investment anymore. They've got their. You know, they've got other technologies that help with that information. They've got maybe ads in a place that they already like. And don't have to put in more engineering resources. Okay, well, with that, if you're a little more concerned about your privacy, you're worried how much Google kind of owns everything, and you don't want that same thing in your for your cellular plan, my friends, I have a solution. And it's so easy, you're going to love it. You just go right, go over techsnap.ting.com. Oh, Linux Action Show. That's not us. Those guys don't even exist anymore, but go check out the other shows. First, though, we're talking about Ting. The average Ting bill, it starts at just $23 per phone per month. That's why Ting is a smarter way to do mobile. Maybe you've seen all the trends recently with the with the big carriers. They've got these crazy, these bundled plans and unlimited plans. And because they can't really sell you on the exact value of their service, they have to make this very nebulous. They give you, they just pile on more minutes, more features, more buckets of data that you probably won't use and that you can't use for whatever you want with, you know, weird throttling in the background. Maybe they're downgrading your videos without telling you or without always telling you. Maybe they're adding super cookies onto you without telling you. All of these practices are things that Ting is just not interested in because Ting... It's mobile that makes sense. It's so simple. It's so easy. And they're just a different kind of carrier. They're focused on you. They're nerds. They're tech people. They're cord cutters, just like the rest of us. And they get it, right? You don't need to pay $70, $100, $150 a month for some cell phone bill that you don't, you know, where you don't care about how many minutes we use. You just want to like, yeah, whatever. It's it's enough. Maybe Ting's not for you, but if you care at all, you want to save money, you want a good deal, you want to understand, and you want to, you know, really be free, Ting is perfect for that. Lines start at just $6 a month. Then you go on over to their rates page, and you'll see how easy it is to start saving money right away. $6 a month? Hey, you probably don't use any minutes. Maybe you do. A couple. You know, grandma calls or something, doesn't doesn't know how to call you on SIP. Um, no text messages, of course not. And then, you know, like a gig of data. Boom. Monthly bill. $25. It's so easy. And when you go to techsnap.ting.com, you'll get a $25 service credit. Yeah, that's right, because Ting's awesome. They support this here TechSnap program, and they support you guys signing up for Ting, making it super easy, giving you that great discount right at the start. You probably will pay for your first month, maybe more if you're, you know, real real slim data user there. That's why Ting is great. You can use it for a backup line. You can use it as a data plan for your, for your, for just a tablet, cell phone, computer, just want to have a, a MiFi in the car. Ting's perfect for that. You use it, you pay for the use. If you don't use it, it's just $6 for the whole month. That's a really easy investment to make. Makes it super simple to get started. And they have incredible customer support. They've got real humans to talk to. They've got an amazing web dashboard where you can do everything. I mean, like, 
You can sign up for Ting, get everything there. Once you get your SIM card, you got your phone on, you can just do everything from the web dashboard, from their incredible app. But if you need to, they got real humans ready to talk to you, super friendly. They'll make sure you get everything solved that you need to. And once you've once you've done that, maybe you don't have a maybe you don't have a phone you want to bring. You can bring your own phone. Did you know that? You can bring your own phone. They have it makes it really easy to find out if your phone's supported. If not, you can go shop their devices. They've got a ton of nice devices to check out too, like the brand new Apple iPhone 7 Plus just added, or the S8. Maybe you're a Samsung person. Really, what I'm trying to say here is, think of Ting as your next mobile service provider. They they make sense. They make it easy. They have all the features you want: voicemail, three-way calling, tethering. It's all right there with no gimmicks. No craziness, no fees or overage charges, no early termination fees. It's just simple. It's just mobile. That makes that sense. Thank you, Tink, for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Okay, with that, we're on to the final story of the main segment today. What's up? But first. Oh, but first. You talked about uh, DigitalOcean earlier. They mm. were the first sponsor. Um, I wanted to. I know I mentioned a little while ago that I had a DigitalOcean droplet that are using for external monitoring. Yes, you did. Uh, well, the the later one of the new, one of the more recent commits of Bacula was causing some stuff to barf up on my FreeBSD reg- regression testing. So I was talking to one of the developers, and I said, "Hey, listen, this is happening." And they said, "Oh, well, I don't have a FreeBSD instance anywhere right now." I said, "Well, I can get you one." So I gave them one. Uh, gave them a, an SSH public key only login on that DigitalOcean droplet, installed MySQL and something else that they needed. I can't remember what it was. And they fixed it. That's Overnight. awesome. <laughs> and so now I'm, now there's one more thing that they have to do. They're, they're going to try some more stuff now. So getting stuff fixed in open source software is as easy as spinning up an instance that someone needs and letting them use it. Well, I just happened to have it anyway. I didn't have to spin it up. So anyway. No, you make a good point. I mean, it does make it super easy. You know, gone are the days where you're waiting hours for that or having to wait for someone to go rack your new hardware or whatever Mm -hmm. or a ticket to Mm -hmm. be. You're just like now a couple button clicks, go do it, try it. When you're done, throw it all away. It's perfect. And I'm fine with letting that developer use that Nagios instance because there's nothing on there whatsoever that 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 is sensitive it's just right. monitoring public services so yeah he can make those same get requests just like you mm-hmm. awesome well that's great that's a really good story thanks for the update there you're welcome okay so what's our last story tonight microsoft mm, we got some big names on today's show yeah uh. i don't have any gripes about microsoft i made my living uh, writing software for Microsoft Windows for many years. That's right. Um, deployed lots of systems on there. It's where I first started playing playing around with databases. Oh. Uh, huh. Maybe not with Postgres. I don't know. Postgres was a, a, after I'd finished uh, writing code for Windows. But yeah, I've written lots of Microsoft Windows programs. Um, and yeah, anyway. So back to this. The main topic of this is not Microsoft Windows. The main topic is, does the U.S. government, Justice Department, have the right to data on overseas servers held by U.S. companies? We're about to find out. Not right away, but maybe later this year. 
article starts off with, The Justice Department on Friday petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court to step into an international legal thicket, one that asks whether U.S. search warrants extend to data stored on foreign servers. So, if if you have a server, if you if you, if you have a Facebook account, and the U.S. government asks for details on that with a warrant, they pretty much have, Facebook will pretty much give it to them with a warrant, or indeed any U.S.-based company. Mm-hmm. Where it falls into an uh, sort of an odd place is where the server is in a country that the U.S. does not have jurisdiction over. In this case. Ireland. So, Ireland has very different laws. Indeed, the EU has very different laws about privacy. And they'll just laugh in your face and say, go away if they're presented with a U.S. search warrant. But in this case, there is a company, Microsoft. And I suspect Microsoft is actually the parent company of who owns the data over there. I imagine if you look very closely... That server is owned by Microsoft subsidiary, uh, which is, in my opinion, a different legal entity. And so the the Justice Department is saying, okay, you're able to read that data. They're not saying how easy it is for them to read that data or what they need to do to read that data, but they're saying you're able to. So you should comply with a search warrant. Interesting. So really, the just, they're just saying that, that their ability to do so means that they, they have to comply regardless. Interesting. The government on Friday told the justices that U.S. law allows it to get overseas data and national security was at risk. I question the national security aspect of this. We've seen time and time again where the Department of Justice will specifically choose a case not for that case itself being important but because they can leverage the precedent for future cases anyway that, that that's what happened with the fbi with the phone with the iphone phone, the FBI. fbi yeah right yeah. exactly there is nothing really important in there they just wanted the legal precedent and they figured this is an ideal situation. All oh, terrorism. All oh, this. All oh, that. We got to get this stuff off the phone. Right. When you can have you know sympathetic jury or be sympathetic to the judges. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, the Justice Department said the court should grant review. I'll explain what that means later. To restore the government's ability to to require providers to disclose electronic communications, which are in this day and age often the only or most critical evidence of terrorism crime. And what they mean by grant review is that they want the Supreme Court to review this particular case. That's what they mean by grant review. And if you've never listened to SCOTUS, uh, I think it's called SCOTUS blogs, um, there, there is a, um, a website which is devoted only to the Supreme Court of the United States, and their blog posts are absolutely fascinating about what goes on at the Supreme Court. And they go into a great deal of detail about why this particular case is important and how it affects various things. And there's, I think it's Nita Totenberg, I may have the name wrong, on NPR, who who does a week, I think on Wednesdays, a weekly review 
uh, of the U.S. Supreme Court, and it's absolutely a, a delight. To it's always to fascinating. Yeah, you learn a lot of a lot of things that way. So, blah blah blah. Senator Chuck Grassley, an Iowa Republican. It's very important for our national security. I disagree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another senator, also a Republican, says, what are the providers supposed to do? Whose law do they violate? Which is true. Mm-hmm. While they're doing business in Ireland, they have to conform to the Irish laws. So... It's really showing the limitations here of, um, you know, corporations have become so multinational in many ways that it's becomes difficult. I feel like for a long time we were able to, the U.S. kind of relied on their place in the world um, and position. And, you know, a lot of them were started nominally in the U.S. sometimes uh, to try to get these things. And it's, it'll be interesting to see how much pushback, how far does this go? Yeah. Um, I think that some email companies, uh, it may have been Fastmail. They're an Australian company, but they have servers in different countries. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's able with, if you're able with them or with other email to providers to say, I want my email only to reside in this country. Right. I don't know if I that's feasible yeah, or I know possible. Australia has some pretty good um, protections for Privacy that. Privacy law, yeah. Yeah. So, Following Microsoft's lead, there are more than 100 active cases in the U.S. in which the tech sector is challenging whether the U.S. government, even with valid warrants, can reach into their foreign servers. So, th this ties in with something where um, another post that I that I saw recently, which we're not going to cover in this show, but we'll cover in the next show, which talks about asking for weaker encryption. And I say that asking it for weaker encryption will not help you at all because there's plenty of encryption out there already, which is reasonably secure. And asking for weaker encryption will only affect those that you're forced to use it. Exactly. Everyone else that wants to do really dirty stuff, they're going to use a good encryption. Yeah, sure. My and mom and dad are using them. From, you can't stop them from doing that. No. So requiring that everyone use weaker encryption makes no sense at all. It just all. reduces your average person's security. Who is advising security. these people? It's very you strange. can't accomplish that. <laughs> but what about what? if I just have my one master backdoor key? Come on, Dan, that's going to work. Yeah. No one will yep. ever get yep. it. Yep, yep, exactly. And that's the point. Encryption is here to stay. You cannot make it weaker because it already exists as strong. <laughs> it's like saying once you've broken the glass, you can put it back together again. You can't. Well, I got a little tape here and I can just... Yep. It's not going to be the same. <laughs> uh, so, very well said. In a nutshell, the U.S. government claims it should not matter where the data is stored. What matters is whether or not the company can access that data in the U.S. Hmm. I sort of disagree with that because I can access that data over my web browser mm -hmm. and it's in it's over there. It doesn't mean the data is over here. Right. Can I just like, I just go step over the border it, with my laptop and SSH and it just works? It can be over here. Mm -hmm. huh. I don't know how to resolve this. And so do they, and, and they're doing already, as part of this, like doing some of those data separation concerns here, where they're explicitly, like, are there systems in place that's keeping that data there? 
I wasn't clear on that. I, I'm not clear as to the, there was details about what the original case was. Um, the U.S. government has a valid warrant for the email as part of a drug investigation. So it's part of a drug investigation. It's not terrorism. It's a drug investigation. It says that right here. So I, again, think that this case has been carefully selected. Shall we read into the details of what the case is? Yeah, let's do it. Why not? Okay. Why not? Blah, blah, blah. No. No. So somehow it was, uh, it is email store, stored in Dublin. Why it's stored in Dublin, I'm not sure. But I'm not sure even what the case relates to. They're not getting into that. They're not saying anything here at all about the case itself. Well, that's not useful. It would require a lot more reading to find out what's going on. All right. Well, then we'll just have to consider that homework for now. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anything else here? Um, or we just have to wait? Uh, if the data's... I say that data is governed by the country in which it resides. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. While, it's, while it's at rest, that's what... Yeah, yes. Data at rest is governed by the countries of the law in which it is at rest in. Hmm, that seems reasonable. I guess we'll have to see if the uh, if that's what becomes the law of the land. Hmm. Uh, well, you're probably, after Dan scared you with this, you're probably worried about your data that you thought you'd safeguarded, and you're realizing that you run a lot of things on other people's computers, and you don't always know what they do with your things. Instead, you could try running things on your very own computer by going over to TechSnap, or ixsystems.com, slash TechSnap. Yeah, that's right. There you'll get the ultimate guide for buying a new server for open source software. It's a free report. 100% secure. You can download it now. It's great. It's a great white paper. If you need to, you know, you're looking to, to some, some more capital expenditures this quarter, or you know someone who is, you need to re-up, buy some new servers, equipment. IX Systems got incredible relationships with their providers. They're kind of the best in the biz. They sell beautiful machines with incredible Intel processors, latest, greatest, super fast, tons of great options. How many Xeons you need? No problem. You need a specialty variant of the CPU? They've got the right channels to make sure that you can get that hardware. And they're ex they're, they have really have unmatched expertise at putting this all together into a functional, ready-for-production system. Make sure any, whatever you want software is installed, bootstrapped, set up, ready to go, so that they'll just ship it right to where you need it. Gets racked, plugged in, online, boom, you've got a brand new server. And, hey, maybe you don't just need a server. Maybe you need some more data storage you've got data problems you know big data is everywhere these days you wanted big data ix systems it's got big data but uh i think maybe a little bit bigger than you're ready for go check out the true rack that thing's insane maybe you're just starting out building your own data centers you realize the cloud is just you're too big for it you're too cool true rack is great they've got you know if you're not that big there's the true nas and just for your home use the free nas mini home use, small office, small business. It's perfect for so many scenarios. And you can buy it right on Amazon. No fuss, no muss. Ships fast. But really, where iX system shines is the custom hand-holding, 
the relationship that they build with you. You don't have to know, you don't have to be a server expert to get a great server from IX Systems. No, not at all. That's one of the huge differences they have. You don't have to know how many IOPS you need or how to calculate that or how to how to make sure that this RAM is compatible with this chipset and the speeds are going to be right and I'm not changing it in the wrong way and you didn't buy that one part that's never going to work in the system and now you're out $1,000. No. IX Systems has people that understand these things. They've got incredibly talented sales engineers ready, excited to talk to you. So just give them a call. Start a dialogue with them. They're really interested to get to know you, your organization, the products you're building, the systems you're building, and help you so that you build you know, the absolute best system that you can. And they're going to do their part to make sure that you know it's, it's really white glove service. Everything's installed, configured, set up. They've burned and tested all the hard drives. And have I mentioned hard drives? They've got great deals there. And of course, they are experts in ZFS. That's right, the one truly enterprise file system. They make all, tons of open c- contributions to OpenZFS. FreeNAS uses it extensively on the back end. So you can really trust that these guys know, you know, when you look at some of their, the people they've worked with, people like Adobe, VMware, Symantec, aerospace corporations, big government agencies, companies like LinkedIn, Tumblr, Hitachi, Splunk, these are people who have big data needs. IX Systems knows how to solve it. And that's why you can be confident that IX Systems can help you solve your problems. So thank you very much to IX Systems for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And go to ixsystems.com slash TechSnap to get started. And that brings us to this week's feedback, the time in the show where we look in our mailbag, find some wonderful feedback from you, our awesome audience. And discuss it right here on the show. We got questions, answers, projects, all the best stuff, and lots of things that stump and confuse us too. Of course, first this week, Sean via Twitter sent in this interesting link AES 256 encryption keys cracked by a hands off hack. Tell me more about this, Dan. Uh, uh, uh. I got the wrong screen up. Okay. So AES 256 encryption keys, basically there's a way of doing it with very, very cheap gear. Now, this came in from Sean via Twitter, and he sent it, I think it might have been early today. But basically what you do is you get together a a bunch of hardware, and I'm not going to go into the hardware, but it's, it's only about 200 bucks. And basically, you can wirelessly extract secret AES 256 encryption keys just by being within a, about a meter of the device. Wow. So that's that's not very far. You, um, I don't, not really sure. It, it requires physical access, but you don't have to touch the box. Um, now... The recording hardware can range from extremely high-end radio equipment, which I'm sure you could be more than a meter away, down to 20 euro USB SDRs. SDRs, software digital radios, driven radios. It's one of the two. But basically, you plug this thing into a laptop, for example, and you have radio that you can drive with your laptop. Um, It's rather popular with hams, I think. Uh, I think sort of remember Diane Bruce being involved with that. I'm not sure. I'll have to ask her. Now, um, 
Fox IT found that it was possible just to swan past the target with a bag of SDR amplifiers, filters, and an, and an antenna and catch a winner in record time. So normally such an attack would require direct access and manipulation, but they could just walk on by. Using this approach requires us to spend a few seconds guessing the correct value for each byte in turn. 256 options per byte for 32 bytes, so a total of 892 guesses. That's not a lot. No, it is not. Sorry, 8,192. So in contrast, a brute force attack would require 2 to the 56 guesses, which is a lot. It's an awful lot. And would not complete before the end of the universe. So a few seconds versus the end of the universe. So the next challenge is distance. They've met their goal of 30 centimeters, but say that a full meter is a possibility given the right circumstances. Those listening, 30 centimeters is, a, is about a foot, really. So they want to go from a foot to a yard for those not metricized. Um, our work here has shown the uh, pr simple proof of concept for Tempest attacks against symmetric cryptos such as AES-256. So if you're using PGP or something like this, this does not apply. This is symmetric cryptos such as AES-256. And by symmetric, it's the same key to encrypt as it is to decrypt. So um, I can't think of anything that uses this. Zip files? Is that zip files that uses this? I'm not sure. Right. But in general, these days, you see a lot of symmetric encryption used after asymmetric encryption when you've you know used your asymmetric encry encryption to establish a symmet symmetric encryption key, which uh, can often be faster or more secure or different or easier to use. Yeah, but you're right. Like Not a lot of things start off with just a symmetric because then you have to have this pre-shared um, same key. That's not a good idea. No. Uh what you were just talking about, you're talking about establishing a TLS channel and then using a symmetric key on both ends? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. I wasn't sure what you were talking about. I was saying, that doesn't sound right. What's he talking about? And then, okay. Well, this is really uh, interesting. Tempest so this attack. means that you would be able to read uh, an SSL stream. Is this a... Anyway. Yeah, no. interesting. I wonder what's gonna what's gonna come of this. We'll see. Especially since it's so easy to do. Okay. Well then, um, on to our next piece of feedback, and this is from our friend Kevin. Kevin writes about workflow and backup strategy advice. He's requesting it. Hey guys, I'm a computer science student from Scotland. I discovered Jupiter Broadcasting last year and listened to TechSnap. Obviously. Hey, very much appreciate your uh, viewership there. He used to listen to Lass, RIP. Hey, don't worry, there's tons of good content. Go listen to LAN, User Air, Linux Unplugged, BSD Now. There's lots of good stuff. Go to Radio User Air. Oh, he's already got them listed. Look at that. You're way, way freaking ahead of me, Kevin. Um, they have really helped in the last year of college by being informative on a wide range of subjects. So thanks, everyone involved. Now, the question. Last year at college, I ran a Windows 10 PC for gaming. And when Windows was required for assignments. Yeah, I know how that goes and an Arch Linux laptop as my daily driver. Very nice. After a major data loss partway through the year, ugh, terrible, I started backing up to my laptop and desktop to an external USB using Borg backup. This, this year, I want to be a little more organized. I have my laptop running Ubuntu Mate, 
My main PC has been purged of Windows, congratulations, uh, and now runs Ubuntu GNOME. It's got an i5-4670K, 32 gigs of RAM, a nice SSD disk, and some uh, two terabytes of Western Digital Blue spinning disks. I was thinking of running the two spinning disks as a mirror, as I don't really need that much storage, and the redundancy would be nice. I'm looking for advice on how best to sync files between the desktop and laptop with some sort of automatic backup solution. I also have two spare Raspberry Pis and one terabyte external USB drive lying around if those can be used. I've been eyeing a FreeNAS Mini, but I can't really afford it, and I think it may be overkill. My ideal situation would be to work on desktop at home, laptop at college, and have the files synced between them. Last year, I had been using Dropbox to move files between them, and some sort of automatic backup solution, either to a Pi or the desktop. Any advice or guidance on where to point my research for a solution would be great. Keep it up, guys. Kevin. Well, thank you very much for your letter there, Kevin. That's great. What do you think, Dan? Well, I think what he wants is an automated solution, one that he doesn't have to think about. And that I don't know of. Um, the, the thing that comes to mind immediately is, is R-Sync, but I don't know how you're going to do a three-way R-Sync because it, it is just desktop and laptop. But somewhere... He's got the two spinning disks on the on the main PC, so I would mirror them. I would set them up as a mirror, definitely. And then I would just R-sync. When you're going to work in your laptop, R-sync your data down from those two spinning disks. And when, when you're done, R-sync them back up. And it'll only transfer the changed data. Um, I don't know if that's enough for what you want, though. I, w- I was thinking of something, um, yeah, it depends on, like you were talking about, you know, it really depends on how involved you want to be. Um, but in the past, I've enjoy- if you use something like uh, SyncThing or LibreVault, or like you had me- he'd mentioned using Dropbox, so I'm, it'd be uh-huh. interesting, like, I don't know why you stopped using Dropbox, but then you can get that kind of close to real-time sync. You know, you turn your laptop on, it connects up, and as long as you've got some other nodes there, so as long as your desktop's on all the time, uh, this is also an easy way if you want to integrate like a cloud option as well, if you're worried about mm-hmm. home connectivity. Um, so then you have those consistent files between them, and then on your desktop, you could easily trigger something like maybe using ZFS, you could have snapshots, and then, you know, send those, replicate those snapshots somewhere else as a um, as a backup. Something like that. I've used that in the past, then you can get versions of your shared state that you have between systems with the sync yes. thing, and then you've got history and then you can do backups from there at whatever pace you need i mean you could even keep using borg or you know whatever you want even just a a a tar file that you go store somewhere put an s3 or or something yeah he he has two one terabyte spinning disks and he has two raspberry pis with a one terabyte external usb drive okay so you might want to look at hooking the one terabyte usb drive up to one of the raspberry pis and then possibly backing make declare one of your systems as being the primary and I would use that as a PC and if it's mm-hmm. always on you can always rsync remotely to and from that PC yeah totally and then have something occasionally send stuff to the Raspberry Pi and have it there as a backup mm-hmm. now what particular tools you're going to use for that that that's Maybe part our, of the fun right I mean our, our snap 
I sort of remember that. Yeah, there's like R snapshot and uh, RDIF backup. Is that another one of them? I believe. Mm, so there's a, there's like a plethora of open source tools. Another one I've get seen. People. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So people I think you probably have other input from the audience. Stay tuned for that yes. in a couple episodes uh, if you don't get too hasty. But it sounds like a fun project and hopefully it will be a good learning experience for you. And I think it so pays to get this right because you're going to be worried about it, especially if you've already experienced data loss. So if you can just nail down a system, you've got it set up, automated, just going in the background, then you can actually have some confidence. I mean, you need to do test your backups, of course, but you know, you can have some good confidence day to day that you have data integrity and it's already there, organized, and then you just have to add to it. <sighs> awesome. Good. Okay. Well, thank you, Kevin. That was wonderful feedback. Um, do we have anything else? Oh, no, because you've already covered. You showed us your awesome Car- DNS book. book. Yeah. Uh, maybe just we'll flash it, it here again. again. Yeah. So uh, this was in a Reddit. Uh, sorry, this was in the TechSnap Reddit, and they were talking about the previous episode, uh, 2324. And it was actually said, regarding DNS, I think Dan mentioned that he didn't have any of the books he used to learn about it. By that, I meant I didn't have them right here. This was out in the living room. Uh, any suggestions about good reading material on that topic, DNS? Thanks for the awesome show. And so the book you want is DNS and Bind. It's a little bit shiny there, but that's the book you want if you want to learn about Bind. And there were lots of really good examples in here. And, and I actually found yellow highlighting. Oh, wow. I can't find it right now. Yep, there's yellow highlighting right there. Hey, look, guys. Dan was learning stuff. Way back then. Yeah. But, yeah. And like you said earlier, just sitting down and going through the examples and reading actually did help me figure out, oh, that's how DNS works. But, yeah, sure. I still made lots and lots of mistakes. (laughs) And from time to time, I do make odd mistakes still. But Of course. At least it's up and running. Awesome. Okay. Well, that wraps up the feedback for today. Uh, Thank you very much, everyone who wrote in, gave us feedback. Sounds like we've generated some more this time, so we look forward to it. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with the Roundup. And that brings us to the final segment of today's show. That's right. Everyone's favorite, the Roundup. We didn't have enough time in the main segment to cover these stories properly, so we're assigning them to you and to us as homework because we think, hey, they're still very interesting. First up, this one in particular I think is a great find for this show, how LZ4 works. LZ4 is a really fast compression algorithm with a reasonable compression ratio, but unfortunately there's a limited documentation on how it works. The only explanation can be found on the author's blog, but I think it's less of an explanation and more of an informal specification. So then the author here, this is over at uh, tiki.github.io, goes into this awesome explanation about how LZ4 works. And you you, know, you may have heard of it from in, in compression that you've been doing yourself or because you use ZFS and it's an awesome option there. What do you think of this one, Dan? I tried to follow it, but I was too caffeinated and could <laughs> not. Um, basically, what they're doing is, is is they're doing the compression by keeping track of all the different numbers that they use and storing it. Uh, I did not follow it. Um, and I actually think that you see here, overview, go down to overview, a little bit further down. Compression, 
No. Oh, wait. No, it's up at the top. Sorry. That makes Linear sense. Linear block overview. There we go. There. Yep. My overview looks very different from yours. Down, down a little bit. Uh-huh. I don't have that. Hmm. I'm going to have to do a screenshot and show you later. Yeah. I don't know but if I believe I, you. I, I have I I have the um I have the unrendered stuff there. I reloaded and it's better. Interesting. Okay. Well, yeah, so this is great. Um if you want to know more about um how compression algorithms work. This is it is kind of technical, um, so you'll have to you know follow closely, give yourself some time to go through it. But I think it's a great reference, and I just love the diagrams, and it's just like a really nicely presented page, well written article with some really good information. And the thing that I found about it, the important thing to know about LZ4 is that it is very fast mm-hmm. at decrypting and at uh, encrypting as well. And the thing is, it knows when it's not compressing. And when it, sorry, it knows when the data that it's compressing is not very compressible. So it just goes up and the data is written uncompressed. And that's that's very useful. Right. So it's really can be, you know, it can be optimized for these cases like with with the ZFS where you, you know, you don't care about getting the absolute best compression. You just want it to be smaller. And, you know, you can end up where that helps you with throughput too, where, you know, a lot of times the compression on the CPU is cheap enough that you can get better throughput to your disk just because you're writing less data. Which is interesting. I think that's great. And um, hey, go to, go play with ZFS. I think that's the theme of today's show. Go play with ZFS and learn how LZ4 works and then maybe, maybe go hack on it. I don't know. That's just a suggestion. Apparently it can be implemented in only a few hundred lines of code. Awesome. That would also be really an interesting thing to do is, you know, go take this, um, take the, the blog post they mentioned, take this blog post and then go uh, see if you can make an implementation. Go get your own, roll your own compression. I mean, only kind of. Okay, awesome. On to the next item then. You know your times tables. Yep. But, Dan, do you know your hash tables? Sort of. I use them a lot in Perl. Fresh Ports uses it in Perl a lot. Yeah. Um, When a commit comes in, it reads through and says, oh, there's this port, and Oh, this port, and just keeps a track uh, keeps track of what ports are affected by this commit, and it stores it all in the hash table. Oh yeah. Now, okay. w- w- people often think of a hash table as being a- an array, but having done an honors thesis on arrays versus n-based heaps, perhaps uh, thirty-two years ago. Um, Arrays and hashes are not the same type of performance. Typically speaking, as an array gets bigger, it takes longer to access stuff in that array. But a good hash table implementation is order one. And if you've never done algorithms before, that won't mean anything to you. But basically, different algorithms have different orders in terms of how does the algorithm or data structure behave in terms of how big the data structure is. And some data structures are terrible. They don't scale very well. In, the, in fact, they scale exactly linearly. If you have 100 items in the table, it's going to take you 100 times longer than it does if there's one item in the table, 
Whereas some are a lot better where they're order log n, which is basically that they grow very slowly compared to the number of elements. Then you have order n log n and stuff like that. But order one. That's the sweet spot. It is, I think, as good as you can get because I don't think you can ever get faster than order one. I don't think. I don't think it gets faster than one. I mean, at that point, maybe it's just a no-op. We didn't do anything. Because then it gets slower. it took no time. Yeah. Yeah. But order one is very good. It means to insert one element, it only takes this amount of time. If the hash is is 500,000 records, it still takes relatively the same amount of time. Right. Right, and the purpose of these, you know, is, is to understand, um, you know, asymptotic scaling behavior, so that as these data structures grow, you know, it it, it doesn't change in these ways. Because yeah, when you're at the n squared case, well, when n gets really big, n squared is a whole lot bigger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, this hashes are used a lot in. There's a there's a storage database that uses hashes a lot. Is it uh, MongoDB? Oh yeah, sure. I mean, a lot of the Hadoop? a lot of the NoSQL um, databases will. I mean, I think these days you see these kinds of uh, you know like the hash table is a more specific implementation of like a general associative data structure here, where you really have this you know especially with the rise of um, JSON and other things as a um, data serialization format, you're really seeing this kind of like key value proposition. I mean, in, in some ways, it's almost like a um, like a statically defined function where you're just like, yep, this is your input, this is your output, here's the association between them. I mean, it gets used all over the place. Route lookup for some you know web API things. Anytime you want to store something by name, anytime you want to have you know like keys indexed into something, it's it's uh, it's all over the place. So go learn yourself some hash yep. tables. H- hashes are really useful for a lot of different things, including, oh, yeah. um, well, when you talk about a hash table or a rainbow table, that's what you're talking about, where basically you have a value you store it in there, you calculate another value. If you store it in there, it overwrites the previous value in that field. So it, it's a wonderful programming uh, tool. Sorry. No, that's perfect. Uh, okay, well then, I think on to the final item in today's roundup. It's a, qu- it's a quick roundup because I think it's a heavy hitter this week. Um, so, you know, maybe you aren't using DigitalOcean. You're using uh, one of these other cloud providers, perhaps the infamous AWS. There is a ton going on there. Security can be hard. So here's maybe something to help you start. This is an AWS security primer. It's got a it's yes. got a graph about kind of overlay of how things interact and I mean there's I think the first thing I saw about this article was like there needs to be more this is not you know and it's it's really not it's not the whole be all end all but but hopefully it can get you started. Yes, and the, uh, don't be put off by that scary cloud at the top. It's not as complex as it sounds. Just boil it all down like this guy says. Uh, oh, is it? Uh, I'm assuming it's a guy. I don't know who wrote it. Do not know the person's name, but that's anyway. On to here. Um, basically, this the post starts off with 2015. I wrote a blog post about your single AWS account is a serious risk. Well, so is your single Gmail account because that seems to be tied to a whole lot of stuff as well. So. Treat it wisely, treat it securely. Um, 
basically now they have organizations, which is a bucket for multiple AWS accounts. And they go into all the details about the AWI and how authentication and authorization works. And it's very important to figure out the difference between authentication and authorization. Authentication is I'm proving who I am and authorization is what I, after I've been author, uh, identified, which is the same as uh, um, authentication, what am I authorized to do? What can you do? So it's similar to first logging into the computer and then um, your ID and the groups that you're in authorize you to do various things. Um, but yeah, definitely, if you're going to start playing around with AWS, this sounds like a very good place to start, especially given the fact that with a lot of flexibility usually comes a lot of complexity as well. And AWS is very flexible. I don't think I could summarize that any better myself, so I won't. That's it for the show today. That's the end of the roundup. Anything else you want to add before we get out of here? Okay. Nope. Easy peasy then. Hey, we're done. Okay, well, this has been episode 325 of your TechSnap program. It was streamed live on June 27th, 2017. If you'd like to see more, go on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. There you'll find the archive, the contact page, the calendar, the IRC room, a live stream. It's a wonderful website filled with many wonders, including a ton of great shows like Linux Unplugged. Linux Action News, User Error, Ask Noah, and so many more. I just, I can't list them. I can't list them all. So go check those out. And if you want more of us, there's the contact page, as I mentioned, or techsnap.reddit.com. And we're both on Twitter. You can find him over at techsnap underscore Dan. And I'm at at West Bay. Easy. Just so easy. Thank you very much for being here. We very much appreciate it. And come join us live next week. Next week.